You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere. Hey, everyone. Tim McMaster here along with our MLB.com Red Sox reporter, Ian Brown. And, Ian, the hot stove season really getting ready to take off. The GM meetings were this week, um, kind of a precursor to the winter meetings coming up in December. But it's also been Awards week, and the Red Sox have been busy in awards week. Andrew Benintendi coming up short for Rookie of the Year. No surprise there with Aaron Judge winning the award, but Benintendi had a great season. And then we just learned that Chris Sale has finished second in the Cy Young voting. Also not a surprise. Corey Kluber kind of caught him down the stretch. But at times this year, Chris Sale, I think, was considered the favorite for the award. And and I don't think a second-place finish takes away from what was a tremendous first season in Boston, the 300 strikeouts, lots of wins. And I think most importantly, I think he proved that he can be the ace pitcher for a playoff team. Yeah, I think without a doubt. Look, Chris Sale, I think, was the best pitcher in baseball through about August 13th, 14th. At the time, uh, Tim, he was 14-4 and with a 2.51 ERA. And then just kind of fell off after that. You know, his past eight starts, he was three and four. Uh, ERA over four gave up, I think it was 12 home runs in his last uh, eight starts. So it just wasn't as sharp. And this was kind of a recurring theme um, from Chris from his Chicago days. So this is the one thing the Red Sox and Chris hope to address going forward. It's just to find out, you know, how to get him to finish strong. If he need a, a short break during the season or, you know, maybe this year with the new collective bargaining agreement there's more days off space throughout the season maybe this won't be as much of an issue but they'd love to get him uh pitching at his highest level late in the season when it counts most because that's what you're going to need look at justin Verlander this year you know that's that's what you need to win a world series you need your ace uh, pitching at his best but uh, no it was a great uh, season great first season for him in boston uh, he really loved the atmosphere didn't make any excuses was very accountable and look he struggled in his first playoff start in Houston, just ran into a bus out there at the Astros. But I think what uh, Red Sox fans should remember is that when the season was on the line, you were on the brink of elimination. You know, this guy uh, came out of the bullpen in game four, down two games to one, um, on three days rest, came in in the fourth inning and just shut the Astros down for, for uh, I think it was five innings, and then it looked like or maybe it was four innings, and they went to him. I thought uh, former manager John Farrell uh, tried to get a little too much out of him. He came up back out to the eighth inning, rather than going to Addison Reed, gave up that home run. But it was an electric performance that day by Sale, an indication of what this guy can do uh, on a big game stage. And I think that's something he can carry with him into the offseason that will help him next year. Hopefully he'll have some, some big games to pitch in next year, too. Yeah, I think it reminded a lot of Red Sox fans of Pedro Martinez coming out of the bullpen back against the Indians years ago and, and shutting them down. He was perfect, of course, and finished it off. But you mentioned him tiring down the stretch. And when you look at that, is that something you think that starts at spring training as far as watching him? And maybe I think we saw, now it didn't help them a lot, but I think we saw with the Mets last year, they didn't even pick up baseballs until a little bit into spring training. They, they really held them back, and of course, it backfired for the Mets. A lot of them got hurt anyway. But when you look at Sale, is that the, is it a complete look at spring training on and how do we make sure this guy stays sharp all year? Yeah, you know, I think the Mets guys are a little younger, so maybe you baby them a little bit more. But, uh, you know, with Sale, I think it's more during the season. Look, try to limit his pitch count when you can. Uh, try to save him an inning or two when you can. I thought, you know, maybe they rode him a little too hard last year. Um, we all, you know, the one thing that got a lot of controversy, Tim, was when he got the 300 strikeouts in Baltimore. It was a blowout game. 
Uh, he did not need to go back out in the eighth inning, but uh, they, they decided at that time to let him go for the milestone instead of, you know, letting him wait five days later and things like that. Um, you got to be careful with that. And you got to conserve every inning you can with this guy to make sure he's fresh and sharp, you know, when you, you absolutely need him to be. And just let's face it, he's got that big, that lanky frame, and it can wear down over the course of the season. So, you know, maybe build in a longer break over the All-Star break or, or, or something like that. Uh, just, uh, you know, I'm sure they'll put their heads together and see what makes sense uh, going into 2018. And it'll be new faces, obviously, putting their heads together when you talk about Alex Cora taking over as manager. And now the Red Sox have a new pitching coach in Dana Levangi, but not new to the organization, not new to New England. He's a native of Massachusetts. He's been around a long time. Um, and kind of a, a neat situation where you have a guy who is hired from within and a guy who wasn't a pitcher, which is interesting. Yeah, you know, you look at Daniel Levanzi, look at coaches, front office. Uh, this guy might be with the Red Sox longer continuously than, than anyone, going back to his time uh, as a minor league player back in, I think it was 1991. So this guy, know, this guy bleeds Red Sox. This guy uh, has done just about every role for the Red Sox. And the pitchers have always loved working with him. It's kind of interesting because he's a catcher, you know. That's, and uh, so you have a catcher as a pitching coach instead of a pitcher, which is what you usually see. Um, but he relates to these guys very well in his role as bullpen coach. And a lot of guys would credit him uh, for little mechanical adjustments they'd make, and he's very good at this. So it'll be interesting to see how he does uh, in his first year as a pitching coach. But uh, I think nobody can question his work ethic, and I think Alex Gore has a pretty good feeling that uh, this is going to work with Daniel Lefancy leading this pitching staff. The other hiring that was announced at the same time was that analytics coach Ramon Vasquez will travel with the club as a liaison. I guess he'll be kind of the connection of of analytics to the team. Um, And when I look at this, and I think about the Houston Astros organization and the Dodgers, the two teams that met in the World Series, this seems like a situation where, you know what, if you can't beat them, join them. This is the type of things those two organizations do, and the Red Sox heading more in that direction. Yeah, you know, the game is really uh, trending in that direction now with, uh, you know, such a uh, focus on analytics and the Red Sox are trying to to, uh, join that party right now. And, uh, you know, look, it worked for the Astros, it worked for the Dodgers, so, you know, why not with the Red Sox too? So I think it's interesting to have a guy in Raymond Vasquez who's going to be sort of, this is a player, because this isn't like a stat geek who's going to be talking to these guys about analytics. He's going to be able to talk to them from a player's perspective and a player's mindset. And I think he'll be able to uh, to bridge that gap. Well, the one ironic thing to me was that, um, and I think it was July of 2005, uh, you Red Sox utility infielder named Ramon Vasquez was traded um, to the Cleveland Indians at that time for a guy named Alex Cora. <laughs> it's kind of funny that he's on the staff now when they were once uh, traded for each other. That is funny. What a great little uh, side note to it all. Um, you have an article on the site right now, Ian, about Bryce Brents being added to the 40-man roster and the fact that, hey, this may be the year that he really gets his chance. He's worked his way kind of slowly, methodically up through the minor league system, um, uh, rated higher at some times than others as a prospect, but he's kind of slowly made that progress. Do they give him a chance to be that fourth outfielder heading into 2018? Is that a plan for spring training, or do you do you have veterans? Obviously, Chris Young, when healthy, has been great in that role the last couple of years, but his contract is up. So it's is it now or never for Bryce Brents to really shine and take over a role on this team? Yeah, I get the sense that Bryce Brents is going to get every chance to be the fourth outfielder, to be that guy who comes off the bench against lefties. And look, you know, he might have deserved it the last couple of years, but his path was blocked by, by Chris Young. 
Uh, they decided that they needed a veteran presence in Chris Young, which was uh, very good the first year in 2016. But Chris did not have a good year in 2017. Didn't even hit lefty, which was his job. So that was tough uh, for Brent to be languishing in the minor leagues all year, not even on the roster, 40-man roster, while Young was not having a very good season. So I think uh, they think, look, uh, he's affordable. They can save money here, maybe spend it somewhere else. And let's, let's see what he can do. I mean, he showed flashes in the – 2016, when he was up, he did, he did a pretty good job when Young was hurt and, and 16 for a few weeks. So uh, looking forward to seeing Brent. He's been kind of a slow, uh, what I like to call late-blooming prospect, really, where he was once a very well-thought-of prospect with the Red Sox. And I think now we'll see if he can uh, take advantage of his opportunity. It's all about, you know, once you get that opportunity, you got to take advantage because sometimes you only get one. Speaking of the outfield, Mookie Betts staying busy this offseason, uh, once again returning to the bowling alley, uh, continuing to be a tremendous bowler, and this time he bowls a 300 game, a perfect game, in a PBA event. Um, have, how much time have you ever spent talking with Mookie about the bowling and, and how much pride he takes in it and how much he loves to do that when he has time in the offseason? Yeah, it's fun to talk about. I mean, I did ask him uh, for a story. I was doing uh, kind of a Q&A where he talked about a bunch of different topics. And I asked him about the bowling, and I was surprised just how much he bowls in the offseason. He goes out there, uh, you know, up to five times a week, five, six times a week, and he's in family leagues, and he's in competitive leagues, and now he at this PBA thing. And, uh, you know, he, he loves it. He's really, really good at it. What, what a great athlete. And, uh, you know, he said there's some similarities in the baseball and the bowling, just the focus you have to have for that kind of split second thing. And uh, so I think that, you know, it's, it's neat to see, and I think it keeps him active in the off season. And uh, it just shows you, you know, how, how talented this guy is and how good his hand-eye coordination is. All right. I wanted to end on a, a sad note, Ian, to a degree, but, but, not completely. Bobby Doerr passes away. He was the oldest living Hall of Famer, obviously great Red Sox back in, in the years with Ted Williams and Johnny Pesky and Dom DiMaggio, anyone who's read the book. The teammates knows about those players' relationships. 99 years old, and that's why I say that it's not completely sad because here's a guy that what a life he lived. Um, he ended up the last uh, few years or more than few years uh, in Oregon where he grew up as well, but I know you've obviously been covering the Red Sox for some time, and, and for a while he had a presence within the organization. Do you have a Bobby Doerr story or, or a memory about Bobby Doerr and his time with the Red Sox? Just, uh, you know, he was pretty much um, in Oregon full-time by the time I took the beat in 2002. But I think it was my first or second year I did a, a lengthy phone interview with Bobby, kind of one of those where they now uh, pieces. And what a pleasure to talk to him at the time. I mean, this is a guy who was just like such a class act, such a gentleman, um, he just lit up when we talked to him about Ted Williams and we talked to him about fishing. He had so many great uh, stories to tell, and then I got to meet him again. Um, it was a teammate's function, actually, uh, in 2005 uh, at the Hall of Fame. Uh, he was there along with um, Dominic DiMaggio and Johnny Pesky, and they did a panel. And what a thrill to listen to those three guys uh, swap stories and just the, the closeness between the three of them. And it was just really uh, a neat thing at the time. And, you know, Bobby Doerr, uh, just so understated, he never got the credit uh, he deserved. I mean, he's the rare Hall of Famer who was underrated. You know, how do you say a guy's underrated when he's a Hall of Famer? It's just you never really heard as much about him as you should have. But you, know, you look at his numbers, and he what really was the uh, you know the, the, what they call the silent captain on those teams. And it was interesting to hear Carl Yastrzemski say uh, earlier this week that in 1967, Bobby Doerr is the first base coach at the time. Uh, Bobby Doerr helps him more than anyone that season, as far as 
coaching and technique and everything, and that just shows you that this guy was helping the Red Sox, you know, even long after he was done uh, playing. And you know, usually when you're in baseball, you hear good things about bad people and bad things about people. Never once heard anything but a positive story about Bobby Doerr. Everything you heard of it, about him was just uh, impeccable. And, you know, certainly telling how much Ted Williams um, looked up to Bobby and Halberstam, David Halberstam, the great author, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, just really painted that picture well in that teammate's book about how, uh, you know, the volatility of, of uh, Ted was kind of offset by Bobby Doerr, and Ted kind of looked to Bobby to, to sort of calm him and sort of balance him. And I thought that was pretty pretty neat and kind of showed you a lot about who Bobby Doerr was. But uh, 99 years old uh, when he died, what a life. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's just amazing that the Red Sox had a, had a player like that. And I'm glad that he got, kind of got the tribute that he deserved uh, this week. Yeah, if you're a Red Sox fan and you haven't read David Halberstam's book, definitely get out there and read it today. It's a great one. It's an easy read, too. It reads very quickly and uh, some great stories in it as uh, those guys made quite a road trip later in their lives. Um, the statue, of course, outside Fenway Park of those guys as well. And you mentioned being underrated as a Hall of Famer, and I think the proof of that is how long he waited to get into the Hall of Fame. He didn't get in until 1986, which is kind of amazing, as you said, when you look at the numbers. But he had to wait for the Veterans Committee before he got in. But uh, a great life lived by Bobby Doerr, and he passes at age 99. All right, great stuff, Ian. As always, this has been MLB.com Extras, our Red Sox edition. For Ian Brown, I'm Tim McMaster. Tune in again next time.